Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay Martin. I am an investor and the CEO of Cambridge House. And my guest today is one of my personal favorites, Lynn Alden, the founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategies. Now, Lynn is an absolute powerhouse in macro finance. She's a powerhouse in FinTwit, financial Twitter. And I really, really enjoy having Lynn on my YouTube show at least once per quarter so I can drive into where she's allocating her cash. I just want to know what's in her portfolio on a regular basis because Lynn has a habit of making very, very smart decisions. But this is the first time she's been on my podcast. So I really hope you guys enjoy this. I asked Lynn to step back a little bit, seeing as this would be her first appearance on my podcast and give us a bit of a crash course in how she allocates her capital, how she creates her portfolio and what she pays the most attention to. So Lynn is incredibly smart. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I always do. Here is Lynn Alden on The Jay Martin Show. Enjoy. Okay, guys, Jay Martin here, and I'm joined once again by Lynn Alden. Lynn, it's good to see you again. Hey, you too. It's been a while. It's been a while, yeah. Now, I've had you on the YouTube channel a few times, but this will be the first episode on our podcast that we've done together. And so for anybody who's just hearing you for the first time, on my channel, would you mind just explaining at a high level, Lynn, uh, what it is you spend your time doing? Uh, basically, I'm an independent analyst. So I provide research for uh, retail and institutional investors uh, across a variety of asset classes. And so my background is a blend of engineering and finance. Uh, so I come at things from pretty quantitative perspective, uh, long-term investor, equities, commodity producers, precious metals, uh, I follow a bunch of macro uh, markets. I also cover the dig digital asset space to a certain extent. And so uh, my overall view is kind of to provide a, a broad set of what's what's going on and then also zoom down to some individual uh, stocks and things like that. So I described as fundamental investing with a global macro overlay. Okay, thank you. And at Lynn Alden Investment Strategy, you you have a few products. You produce a free newsletter every six weeks, which is phenomenal. And no investor should, should miss that because it's free and it comes out every six weeks. And you obviously put a lot of thought and time into it. Uh, my whole team reads it. You share your portfolio to a degree, but you have like five or six portfolios for your premium subscribers as well. And so what, what all is behind there? So in the, in the research service, it's a low-cost research service, and I have a handful of different portfolios. And that comes out uh, usually every two weeks. Uh, so we cover things more frequently, talk about what's happening in the macro environment. Uh, talk about upcoming portfolio changes, and then usually dive into a specific investment, kind of highlight uh, something that, that's pretty interesting. Uh, and so it's kind of a microcosm. The newsletter comes out three times as frequently. Sometimes there'll be an extra you know, episode if there's something crazy happening, like back in March 2020 or something like that. Usually it's every two weeks. Okay, now I have a question for you. Why not focus all your attention on the portfolio? Why focus on a media presence as well with all the content you produce and with the newsletter coming on shows like this, why spend energy doing things like this instead of just spending all of your energy on your investment portfolio? What does creating media do for you? So I think my, my fa the favorite thing I do is when I sit down and write a long form research piece okay. uh, that, inc that includes the newsletters, the premium reports, uh, the, the public articles, right? So I just wrote like a 15,000 word article analyzing Bitcoin's energy usage uh, from multiple different angles, for example. And so that's where I, I generally find flow, uh, what I find mm. very interesting, um, as well as finding individual investments and things like that. So, you know, if I was, if I was, if I did enjoy that writing and that researching and that charting, 
yeah. uh, than than being a, a say a pure portfolio manager, maybe putting out a quarterly newsletter to investors. You know, would, would be the ideal path to go. But because I like that that writing and researching and kind of teaching and and kind of learning something and then explaining it, that mm-hmm. that really kind of resonates with me. And so I, I I like to do that. As far as media presence, the funny thing is I never. You know, I never asked to go on on shows or things like that. I mean, if, if anything, I've had to, I had to say no a lot more than I'd prefer to just because of the volume. Uh, and so, you know, mm-hmm. I, there's certain, obviously certain channels I'd like that I have an established connection with that I think they do good work, including yours. I'm happy to come on, but it's actually the, it's the opposite. Like I don't, I don't reach out to do media really. No. Yeah. I'm not, not surprised to hear that you say no more than you say yes. Now that makes sense to me, and you know I, I author a, a weekly newsletter. It's not nearly as technical um, as yours, but I find that you know maybe doing the newsletter, maybe doing shows like this, interviewing people like you, um, it's fine. I'm also the biggest benefactor of my channel. Like my portfolio is probably the biggest benefactor of what I learned from conversations with people like you. And I was curious how much you benefit from authoring your letter, writing your reports, and all that stuff. And you touched on that a little bit. So, look, I have a question for you now. You know, anybody entering the market, I always advise them to find a a guru, quote unquote guru, that resonates with them. Somebody who has a style, they articulate in a way that you understand well, they explain topics and you understand them when they explain them. Somebody who who you'll continue to revisit on a regular basis because consistent education is key to anybody entering the market. And you can only be consistent if you enjoy it. So finding those personalities that you enjoy is critical. But the world is awash in investment gurus handing out horrible advice. So for anybody entering the market now looking for a personality, excluding yourself, but like what can people look for in a guru that they should trust? And what can people look for in a guru that they should stay away from? So for me, there's kind of two types of, of say, researchers that I find valuable. So one would be a subject matter expert, right? So Let's say someone is, you know, covering the precious metals market and that's all they do or most of what they do. Right. Whereas let's say a part of what I do, I want to keep tabs on on their research. And so, you know, that might have, say, someone who covers tech really, really well. It's all she does. I want to see what she says. There's someone that covers uh, precious metals uh, companies. I want to see what he says. Maybe there's someone covering, uh, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum and I want to see what, what they're doing. And that might overlap with things I'm doing. But if they're putting 100% of their energy into it, they're probably seeing things I'm not seeing. Uh, and so it's kind of like, it's my way of having employees without actually hiring them, right? I'm outsourcing to, to key specializations. So that's number one is find someone who seems to have a passion and interest in covering a certain thing and has a good track record in that and puts out content that makes sense. The second one, which is harder, is I think finding frameworks that make sense, that help mm. you make sense of the world financially. And so, for example, for me, that would be, uh, you know, Ray Dalio, I found very helpful uh, in my learning process for, for macro, the concept of the long-term debt cycle, how he explains things. doesn't mean I agree with him on everything, but he lit a fire of knowledge that I then could go and verify for myself. Like, you know, don't trust verify. He, he pointed this in a direction. There are certain charts that were very compelling. I went and just found my own data sources, recreated them, uh, examined them from like, you know, 10, 10 more angles and said, okay, this answered a bunch of the questions I had. Uh, and mm. there's a maybe a couple other frameworks that I've maybe added on to it, right? So I might have, say, three different frameworks that kind of each explain part of the problem. And so I find that very helpful. So I would say you don't want to be married to a framework, right? Because each, each framework is going to be imperfect. It's like that quote, like, all models are wrong, but some are useful. So find, okay. some, find some useful but wrong models 
that help you that help explain kind of the bigger picture stuff and then specialists uh and obviously you know people that are overly promotional sensationalist um just don't mm-hmm. have a you know just like you know if they're making sensationalist claims years ago that didn't come true you know that that affects how how much you weight their their views going forward yeah that's that's the hardest part i find and what i hear i guess most frequently from friends of mine who are who are beginning to research beginning to enter the market is financial media is so sensational because at the end of the day it's it's a media business therefore it's entertainment and the individuals who are calling for the market crash calling for the dollar to go to zero or bitcoin to go to zero or bitcoin to go to a million bucks or whatever but those those you know far end of the spectrum claims are what get the most attention that the loudest voices and it can be the most confusing simultaneously i wonder when someone's completely invested in one thing from an energy standpoint whether it's gold whether it's bitcoin you have to create your own biases to a degree right and a red flag i tell my audience to look out for is if somebody has and this is not a hard and fast rule so i'm not throwing anybody under the bus but if they're you know the 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 gold speculator the gold expert the gold whatever the bitcoin this the bitcoin that you got to wonder if they're ever going to give you both sides of the argument on that specific asset class what do you think no, i think that's a really good point and that you know i've seen that for example uh especially you know the gold community uh has done that the bitcoin community has done that there i mean there are people that only cover stocks and all they are ever is bullish on stocks right um they're they're bond bulls they're just nothing but bond bullish uh they've never seen a bond they didn't want to buy mm. uh and, and so you know that's why I like to, you know, that's why I like to have that big framework in addition to subject matter experts. Yeah. And you can, and generally, I mean, you can find subject matter experts that, you know, you should actually find ones that have made bearish calls on their industry. That's actually good. We, we discussed before, what do you want to look for? That's something to look for. I mean, you know, mm. uh, that, if, are they a promoter or are they an analyst, right? Because an analyst, you know, will talk about risk sometimes, uh, we'll talk about downside. And so I think that's really important. And, and one of my approach is I, I, you know, you kind of, in some ways you, you develop specialties by accident just because you're interested in something or your background happens to be suitable for it. And you're, and so you, you kind of pseudo specialize in it. But my goal really is to not be a specialist and to kind of be able to cover say five to 10 different types of markets right. so that I'm not, I'm not married to any market. Right. I, I can mm. like copper and then, and then not like copper, uh, you know, American stocks and then think they're overvalued. I can, I can, I can fluctuate around and there might be, you know, the framework might tilt me towards being more structurally bullish on certain areas, but I'm still happy to say this has gone really far, really fast. So, you know, I'm going to rotate out of this a little bit going to here, uh, not because I'm a market timer, just because I, you know, I track valuations, I track, you know, things that are maybe too, too full of sentiment. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's a really good point is you want to find analysts if they are specialists in, in their area that have made calls to the other direction as well. So how do you check your conviction in an idea? And what I'm asking is when you get excited about something and you check in with a few of your specialists and you find some agreement in this thesis, in this asset class, your framework supports it and you start deploying some capital. Turns out you're right, the price of this asset increases. So now you're almost more right than you were last week because your bet has paid off which can increase your confidence in that decision and encourage you to double down on that same decision, which creates blind spots because you're blinded by your own confidence. I've been down this path and maybe you have as well. How do you check your conviction in those scenarios, Lynn, when your decision's right, it's starting to pay off, but you need to make sure you're not blinded by your own success. 
One is to purposely follow people that represent the other side of the argument. And so, for example, like I have, I mentioned before those frameworks, um, and then I've, I've kind of made those frameworks my own by doing, you know, independent analysis and kind of, you know, my own data sets. And, and so now it's like my framework that's inspired by someone's framework. But, right. you know, so, but then I follow people that have a different framework. Uh, and it might even be uh, a, an opposing framework. It might say, you know, that we might, obviously we live in the same reality. So it's not, you know, we agree on certain points, uh, but we might disagree on say 70% of the, of the points or, or might majorly disagree on timings for things like that. Or, or, it, you know, obviously economics, you know, really, really complex system, tons of variables. And so there could be disagreements about which variables are the bottlenecks, which ones matter more than others. Um, and so it's really good, uh, you know, whether, whatever your chosen medium is, whether it's Twitter or YouTube or, or you're following their blog or, or paying for the research, uh, find people that are thoughtful, but that you disagree with. You should be able to articulate the opposite side of your investment thesis as well as you can in, describe the bullish case for it, I think. Mm. Um, so that, that'd be my number one. And then two, I just, you know, most successful investors, you know, are just dispassionate, right? So, mm. it, it, and it, this, obviously there's different, you know, some people say that in order to get rich, you have to be concentrated and then diversify to stay rich. Um, but also you just, to get rich, you just never want to blow up, right? You never want to be over leveraged to something or yeah. too concentrated. So there's certainly yeah. a, a balance there where, you, you know, if you're, if you're never, if you never kind of take conviction, you might as well, you know, buy index funds and, and, and just, you know, save time. Um, but on the other hand, you don't want to be so exposed to something that you basically bet every, every single thing on a, on a thesis, because, right. you know, even the best, you can never really be more than say 95% sure on any one thing. Right. Yeah. It's impossible to know when there's unknown variables always at play. Yeah. You can be quite sure, but okay. Now, can you pull any examples? So you talked about about having a framework. You referenced Ray Dalio and the long-term debt cycle. For anybody who's not familiar, if you could give us a quick highlight about about what that is, what the what his long-term debt cycle framework is, and how that's directed any of your holdings in your portfolio. Sure. So the long-term debt cycle, uh, folk. Well, first is the short-term debt cycle, right? So the the normal five to ten-year business cycle, credit cycle. And that's where you have during the during the expansion, you get more and more debt in the system. Uh, it eventually becomes a little bit too euphoric, malinvestment, and then some sort of ex catalyst or or something, uh, you know, causes enough of disruption uh, that you you have a recession, a deleveraging event. Um, but because of the system we live in, policymakers come in, they do fiscal stimulus, they cut interest rates, they they do everything they can to short circuit that deleveraging. Uh, and so usually the debt to GDP, uh, you know, it goes down from its peak. But it doesn't go all the way down to where it started that cycle. And then you start the next cycle, uh, building up leverage again. Uh, and so when you string multiple of those short-term business cycles together, you get higher and higher debt to GDP, and you get lower and lower interest rates. Because it's uh, not a full reset each time. Exactly. Instead of a sine wave, it's like a, a sine wave that's in an upward slope. Yes. Um, and so, uh, so when it, you, know, you string a bunch of those together over multiple decades, and if you get down to zero interest rates and extremely high debt, uh, they kind of run out of room with that system. So that sounds uh, familiar. Yeah. So then they turn to asset purchases. Um, but then even that becomes insufficient because asset purchases, you know, when the, when the Federal Reserve does QE, that doesn't, that doesn't inject money into people's accounts. That just, you know, they, they create new bank reserves, they buy treasuries. That it's basically like adding wholesale money to the banking system. Uh, it's not really getting out to the public. So then, even when that's not enough, 
then they turn to what, what Daly would refer to as monetary policy three, where they do large fiscal spending and then have the Federal Reserve create new base money to buy a lot of the treasuries associated with that fiscal spending. So you have monetized deficits and that gets money directly into the hands of people and businesses. And so if you look, there was a paper by BlackRock uh, published in 2019. Uh, Stanley Fisher from the uh, former, uh, former uh, Fed uh, was uh, also an advisor with that paper. And they talked about, this was before the pandemic, they said in the next downturn, interest rates are so low, debt's so high, there's not a lot of policy space. Uh, and so what's going to happen most likely is we're going to have to, uh, you know, bring interest rates to zero, mm -hmm. do large uh, fiscal support of some type, could even be helicopter money. Mm -hmm. uh, and then any inflation that comes from that, we're going to have to hold rates low anyway for a period mm -hmm. of time. Uh, and that's just kind of what we find ourselves in. And so that they basically were saying, we're in long-term debt cycle territory here. Uh, and it's funny because that's exactly how this played out. I mean, obviously we added complications to the mix with you know the, the, the coronavirus, but essentially it's, we, we've gone through that playbook. And that's also the, the playbook that, that you know, Dali was talking about. So ironically, it's almost like you're so bearish that you're bullish uh, when it comes yeah. to equities. So going, yeah. back to the, going back to the question of what do you buy and that, how does it influence portfolio? You know, what, what separates a long-term debt cycle, the way that gets resolved historically is a currency devaluation. So you, you, yeah. inflate, you inflate away enough of the debt that you have a lower debt to GDP ratio because the nominal GDP went up enough. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's historically, and then you can, you can do that. You can thread the needle, like say the, you, you know, the United States did in the, in the forties and, and, and kind of that's the last time we were in the long-term debt cycle, the thirties mm. and forties. Uh, so you don't have say a hyperinflation. You just, you have a, you know, if you were holding treasuries throughout the 40s, you lost between 30 and 40 percent of your purchasing power holding what is supposedly the safest investment in the world. Yeah, right. right? So that's that's the good case. Uh, and then, of course, the, there's a range of, of cases. If you were in, if you were in Europe or other places, you generally lost more. Uh, and of course, there are some countries, some emerging markets uh, where you'd have a total loss if you're, if you're primarily holding currencies or bonds. Um, so that's generally how a long term debt cycle resolves. And so, you know, when, when you're identifying this, you're saying, okay, sovereign debt to GDP is very, very high. Uh, they, you know, they're kind of stuck. If they have deflation, it can, it can cause serious financial problems. Uh, and at the same time, if they have inflation, unlike the 70s, well, where debt was low, they could raise rates back then to contain it. They really can't raise rates now too much because it, it renders the, the sovereign, uh, you know, insolvent. And so because they control the printing press, uh, they pretty much, by definition, can't be insolvent uh, in, in in nominal terms, just in real terms. Mm -hmm. so that that's the situation we kind of find ourselves in, and so it comes down to managing the timeline of that, right? Because some people could be a decade early, other people could not see it coming at all. And so, ideally, sure. what you want is is see it coming, and then also know what signposts or things to monitor along the way. To know that things are heating up, flattening out. Okay, and yeah. so based on everything you just shared. You know, if we get into the, you know, inflation or not debate, which was a pretty hot conversation on my channel for maybe like more two months ago, but but pretty consistent. Is this transitory? Is this not? Is this runaway? All this stuff. And I find, I don't know if you find this to be the case, but when I start hearing like uh, really loud voices on either side of the spectrum like that, you've got the runaway inflation voices on one side and then, well, actually the, the deflationists on the other side, you know, the David Rosenbergs and uh, a handful anyways, um, Jeff Snyder, et cetera. And usually the truth tends to lie somewhere in the middle, right? A more moderate, maybe inflation here and deflation there. So anyways, outside of call it like technology-based services, 
So media consumption, movies, music, all this stuff, which I think we can all agree is deflationary. Are you seeing broad inflationary trends that are not transitory? Uh, for the for the most part, yeah. So I would put myself on the on the moderate inflationary side of that moderate debate. So I was, I was yeah, I was expecting higher inflation than we've seen for a while. That was kind of my public position for the past couple of years. Uh, we've really kind of seen that play out this year, right? So we got five percent inflation prints. Uh, we got some pretty you know epic uh, you know kind of spikes and. You know, part of that is supply chain issues, but every inflationary period has supply chain issues. That's of course. the whole definition really of inflation is you have monetary inflation. So money supply goes up a lot and then you run into some real world constraint. So in the, in the 1940s, that was commodities and labor uh, in the 70s. That was oil. We had, we had basically uh, say uh, U.S. production of oil peaked. And so we were more reliant on on imports while at the same time. We had geopolitical issues with those exporters, and they didn't want to export to us, and so we had shortages. Mm. Uh, and of course, we also that translates into raising the prices of everything else. And so here in the 2020s, we find ourselves with such a complex global supply chain, uh, yeah, that you know, combined with you know, rapid increase in, in the broad money supply that kind of boosted demand back, uh, we find ourselves with a bunch of real-world constraints. And so mm. that that can, I've described it as like rolling inflation. So it's not like we just have like a constant. You know, equal level of inflation going up. Earlier this year, we had a lumber spike. Uh, that would I would describe that as a shallow inflation constraint because we didn't have a timber constraint. We just had a sawmill capacity constraint. So turning right. timber into lumber, right. uh, that's not a super challenging thing to solve. So that eventually rolled over. We've had a a, a deeper problem is the semiconductor shortage uh, mm -hmm. because most semiconductors are made in a handful of countries, especially the high end semiconductors. A lot of the companies you think of as semiconductor companies are actually fabulous, meaning they they don't make it themselves. Um, and, and so there's actually only kind of a handful of major companies that, that are really responsible for a large portion of the semiconductors. Right. And so that that's influencing all sorts of things like like vehicles. Um, and so we have used car prices skyrocketing. That might go the way of lumber. It, it already seems like it's maybe cooling off to some extent. Um, you know, we have, say, plastic shortages in part because of all these kind of uh, weather events we've had. Uh, in the Texas area, whether whether it's hurricanes, whether it's it's ice, you know, uh, freezing storms, unusual cold, um, and, and so you know now we're seeing rent prices start to go up pretty strongly, which mm -hmm. you'd expect from, you know, housing like a uh, uh, housing level prices went up quite a bit. Like I said, the broad money supply went up quite a bit, uh, and so I think that's kind of the next leg up. Now, how long that persists after that will kind of come down to two things. One is uh, labor, labor. Like wages, right? So it's hard to get sustained inflation without wages going up. Yeah, we see more and more signs of labor shortages. Uh, so if, you know, one difference is if you look back in the '70s, you know, you still had most of the labor was domestic, um, and so you know, you had a, a pretty tight correlation between productivity and wages going up. But because of offshoring and and you know, the United States running big trade deficits, and we've been able to like offshore a lot of our workers. So you have a disconnect between productivity and wages. Yeah. Um, so that that's been a pretty strong disinflationary force, and but if we start to see a kind of a, a period of reshoring, like let's say we've 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 gotten costs so down because of this global supply chain, but we sacrificed resiliency to do it. Mm. If we have a, a stronger imperative to increase resiliency, maybe at the cost of you know some cost increases going up, um, you know you can start to see wages uh, push up to some extent. So you know overall, my base case is that I I think we're in a somewhat inflationary period, but not necessarily in a straight line. And the other big variable would be if we get more rounds of fiscal spending or if we go into a multi-year period of, say, political gridlock, 
uh, where a number of countries, especially the United States, decide to hold off on stimulus for, for a period. Two questions I have pulling off of that. Number one, do you think the end of the eviction moratorium could counter your rent inflation and housing price inflation to any noticeable degree, or is it not an important bullet point? So I would say the the end of the moratorium should be uh, positive for rent prices. Um, and so part of why they're not going up is because if you can't evict people, it affects your pricing power. And yeah. so what we've seen is early signs. Uh, so you know, we're already seeing, uh, if you look at the data, it's not just theoretical. We're already seeing an uptick in rent prices. So yeah. the question is how, how big or how persistent it will get. Generally, you see, uh, you know, the biggest increases are in, in people that have changed locations. So if, if you have new tenants coming in, that's when you raise your prices mm -hmm. quite a bit. Um, and so we've been seeing jumps there. Another thing is that the rent moratorium, if you look at the percentage of people paying rent, it's actually not that different from, say, 2019, right? So it's, we, ha we have this conception where, you know, half of people are not paying their rent. Um, and that, that kind of overstates what's happening. There's actually a, a pretty small percentage that are really making use of those rent uh, moratoriums. Okay. Um, and, and so I would say it has a somewhat smaller effect, but because the marginal pricing can affect the whole thing, uh, you know, basically if, if, if landlords know that if push comes to shove, they had trouble evicting their tenants, they, they might be less aggressive at trying to raise their rents across the board, even for paying uh, tenants. Okay. Um, but so I, I do think that that as that comes off, that should be pro rent price. Now, on the other side of it, the the unemployment benefits wearing off, that could put a little bit downward pressure on this labor shortage we've been having. Yeah, so right. that, that'd be that'd be kind of the anti wage increase theory that you know, this is this is primarily like a, mm. a temporary thing. It's only held up because the incentives have been messed up for the past year and a half. And so when that wears off employees will have more leverage. And I think that that's certainly a variable to watch out for. Um, so I'm actually really curious to see what happens with some of these jobs numbers uh, in, in quarter four and then say uh, first quarter of next year. Uh, but I, I do think that the more likely case is that there is some structural labor shortage here for a period of time because we're changing a lot of things in the economy. And we've had pretty significant inflation in certain uh, most categories outside of say software, electronics, apparel, things that are easily reproducible. And and people are basically demanding higher wages in order to, you know, yeah, go to work for periods of time. 100%. And all that supports what you said. You expect inflation, but not in a straight line. Rising inflation, yeah. but not in a straight line. What's up, everybody? Sorry for the interruption. Quick note. If you enjoy these conversations, I publish a weekly newsletter and it's free where I share my top takeaways lessons learned, and any action steps I might be taking as a consequence in the market. Sign up at cambridgehouse.com. I publish every week and it's free. Now back to the conversation. So stepping back then, corrections aside, we continue to see rising inflation, you know, at a super basic level. That means if you're, you're holding cash, you're hurt. If you're holding assets, you win. Generally speaking, it's the wealthy who have the assets and the poor who are who are holding cash. So with an increase in inflation, we can only expect any wealth gap to increase as well. And the populism, the rise of populism trend that we've been seeing over the last decade in the US, you could expect that to accelerate as well. And do you do you watch that trend as well? Do you do you watch the impacts of of civil unrest and populism and the way politicians respond to it, and factor that into your investment theses at all? In 
so that wealth concentration is is another framework that I've I've watched to some extent because you generally you have these long stretches where you know p- politics favors labor for a long period of time until it gets kind right. of excessive and they start to get so much political power that it becomes untenable and then someone comes in and it's, there's enough political pushback that they break that up and kind of swing the pendulum in the other direction then you get to the point of like crony capitalism where like you know you have like a, a corporations of all the power uh, labor's been crushed uh, pe- pe- people get populist against that, and someone comes in and busts that up, and, and you know pushes the pendulum back in their direction. That's kind of been that that's been like an age-old thing in history. As far as inflation, who who inflation benefits or hurts is actually really there's a lot of variables in there, and so the unintuitive thing that you wouldn't expect is so if you look at the the two inflationary decades of last century, the 40s and the 70s, wealth concentration went down uh, during those inflationary periods. And it's it's complicated because so in the 40s you had very very high tax rates on the wealthy, mm-hmm. uh, and in the 70s you had very very high union uh, laborship uh, uh, membership things like that. Okay. Another compli- another complicating factor is so the rich hold more diverse assets, including inflation adjusting assets. But if you look at say how much assets they have compared to how much leverage they have, they have very very little leverage compared to assets. Interesting. If you look at people on the bottom 90%, especially the bottom 50%, they have like half as much leverage as they have assets. They're very leverage heavy. Yes. Um, and, and so the, actually in an inflationary environment, a lot of those, a lot of that leverage is fixed rate. A lot of it is, you know, gets basically partially inflated away. Yeah. Um, and, and so if you have, say, a fixed mortgage on your house and you're middle class, that's a big, that's a, you have a, you're quite short the dollar in that sense. You're, you're, you're long a hard asset and you're short the dollar for a very big chunk of your net worth. Right. And, and so it really it's kind of complex because if say you were a you're a retire on fixed income uh, and you're not particularly well off, then you're hurt by that, right? So you're unless you happen to hold major inflation hedges on the side, and so it really it's really complex. There's multiple variables there: assets, liabilities, uh, whether or not your assets are inflation adjusting, um, and so there there are people from both the poor camp and the rich camp and the middle camp. That will benefit or be harmed by this, partially based on how when they invest through it, partially based on the reasons for the inflation, right? So, in the 40s, you know, you had this. It's almost like they did MMT in the 40s. They 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 printed a ton of money, they built all these factories, they hired a bunch of people. When the soldiers came home from war, they sent like eight million of them to college and training programs and things like that. And so you, that that was inflationary, but it was mostly screwing over the wealthy bondholders by with high tax rates and devaluing their bonds. And then, you know, shoving that into the middle class. That's, that's kind of that's partial, partially what they had. Mm. Um, and, and so in this environment, we've had higher prices, higher grocery prices. But also, for example, wealthy people don't get stimulus checks. The poor people, uh, you know, say the 90% of the population does. I shouldn't say right. poor people. The right. majority of the population. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the wealthy people still benefited from the asset prices going up because we've had an unusually strong stock market, housing market. And so this has kind of been that rare environment where most people have kind of pushed up in some way in nominal terms. Mm. And it, it's we have to worry about the hangover maybe going out a couple of years because we're already starting to see that ec- economic data is decelerating, right? So we had this strong year of growth uh, after the, say, the, the key lockdown periods back in the spring of 2020. Yeah. Um, and so now with fiscal stimulus wearing off and with base effects harder and with, you know, kind of the, the peak probably behind us, we're, de- we're decelerating now to some extent while we still have some of those inflationary pressures. So we risk kind of this somewhat more stagflationary environment, and it's really worth kind of watching out for that. So that that could start kind of separating 
winners from losers a little bit more. Interesting. Okay. So let's, can we talk about your portfolio a little bit and how you've built your wealth picture and at as high of a level as you want to, can you talk to me about your distribution through hard assets, maybe real estate, gold, alternative assets, equities? How do you organize your wealth, Len? So I've had a very big exposure to equities, uh, you know, for, for this whole period. And that, you know, a combination, I use some indices, but I prefer to identify sectors or companies that I think have a reasonable valuation uh, because I know what, you know, I can look at them. I know what their cash flows are. Um, obviously, you're, you know, you're, you always have variability in the future, uh, but it's easy to, it's easy to kind of feel comfortable in investment when you, when you know, when you can do a model on it and say what you think it's worth versus just owning a line that goes up and down and represents like a, you know, 500 companies, you actually want to look through them and kind of, you know, mm. know what's going on there. And so I have a, a variety of equity exposures, both uh, in the United States and globally, right? So it's geographically diverse, it's diverse by sectors, uh, but it is tilted uh, towards certain areas. And so, for example, I've been, you know, pretty bullish on on energy at these at these kind of beaten down prices, for example. I like I like some of the the lower cost, lower leverage producers, right? So I like to hold investments for years. So I'm not really kind of swinging for the fences with the most leveraged speculative ones. I prefer okay. the, kind of the, the longer term compounders. Yep. Same thing for some of the higher quality midstream companies. I like some of the healthcare companies. Mm. Um, and then there are certain tech companies that despite being very expensive, I've been long because I, you know, I think that they're kind of long-term winners, right? So for example, there are people saying the FANG stocks were overvalued five, six, seven years ago, and then they you know, doubled or tripled from there um, because they had real kind of fundamental growth behind them. Uh, and so there, you know, there are a handful of tech st uh, stocks that I cover like that. Um, and so I have that, you could kind of say it's, you know, you take the 60-40 portfolio, but then you take out a bunch of the bonds and you put in precious metals, uh, you, you put in some additional equity exposure, but carefully selected. Okay. Uh, I've also been, been pretty heavily long Bitcoin since April 2020 uh, yeah. as part of that portfolio slice as well. Right. Now, can you talk to me about what, uh, what specifically you look for in the healthcare sector? And the only reason I ask is because that's a sector that's super interesting to me. I, I am always looking for opportunities in maybe more health science, but it's like a personal passion and a big piece of my portfolio. Two conversations I had this week, David Rubenstein, Mark Yusko, both called out healthcare as their industry they're most excited about. Anything specific in healthcare catching your attention right now? So one thing is if you look at People often describe growth versus value stocks, but you can separate value stocks into, say, cyclical value and defensive value. Uh, okay. and, those, and those tend to perform very differently in different environments. And so healthcare would, 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 would fall more into that defensive value uh, if you're talking about, say, the larger types of companies versus the smaller, like, biotechs. Sure. And so be, because, you know, there's, even though my coverage is pretty broad, there are certain areas that I, I don't cover uh, almost at all, which is a small biotech. So it's just not, I have zero edge there. Yeah. So that'd be an area where I, if I, if I were to add some of that to my portfolio, I would, I would follow a, a you know, professional, like a, say a, a medical analyst or something like that and, yeah. you know, take tips from there. And so what I do is I, I sort through some of the larger or mid cap ones that are, have these diversified business lines and say, if I think the economy is decelerating, I look into these and I say, well, these, you know, they have their own risks, but they're, you know, the business cycle is not really one of them, mm. uh, you can say. Mm -hmm. um, and so I kind of tilt into those if I expect the business cycle to to turn lower, the, yeah, that okay. defensive value space, kind of like how people would treat utilities. 
Um, but sometimes you can get different, you can get better valuations uh, with some of those. So I, I look for why, you know, I analyze the, you know, the, the strength of their, pro, of their portfolio, their pipeline going out uh, several years. I look at their valuation, I look at their balance sheet. And, and so I kind of, you know, some of the health insurers, even if they're, if they're oversold under love. So I, I kind of pick through some of the, the mid to large cap mm-hmm. value space if I'm not feeling particularly bullish about some of the more cyclical prospects in the economy for a period of time. Okay. Thanks for that. Now, um, yeah, I know you've been you've been long Bitcoin since probably our first conversation, uh, if not sooner, as you said, April 2020. You know, the way I've started to think about crypto or digital currencies are like into three buckets. You've got your your maybe traditional cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and, and now thousands of others, but everybody knows Bitcoin and Ethereum. And then you've got your central bank issued digital currencies, which are probably arriving, have arrived in some countries. And then maybe if there's a third box, you call it your Silicon Valley based cryptocurrencies. And the one that we all know about is Libra. And this is like the tech giants. When are they going to start creating with aggression their own currencies? Now, I, I, I'm really curious about that third box. And I don't know if you've got any thoughts on it, but you look at a company like Amazon, right? It's, it's obviously in the conversation, in the boardrooms. There's obviously plans and, and whatnot. And with the right execution, you know, I could live, we all could live 100% of our lives inside of the Amazon ecosystem, right? All the food, supplies, goods, services we need could be found right there and purchased with the Amazon currency. Do you see anything interesting over there, Lynn, or does anything catch your attention or have any thoughts? To a certain extent. And so, I, you know, I think it is important to think about central bank digital currencies and then there's private versions. Yeah. Okay. And so when we, and one, one thing to separate is when we look at something like China, They've been working on, they've been researching this topic since like 2014, and they've been testing it for a few years now. And so they're almost at the deployment stage for their central bank digital currency. Um, and, and, and to some extent, that's because just like in a business, if you're the incumbent, you have less incentive to disrupt yourself, right? It's the, it's the hungry newcomer that wants to do something different. So uh, China wants to be able to buy, you know, buy commodities in their own currency. They want to surveil their, their citizens as much as they can, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to go around the SWIFT system. They have a bunch of incentives that really, you know, when they saw the technology, they're like, wait a second, we can really use this. And so they were they were quick on that. Um, and so they're ahead of the they're ahead of the curve there. The Federal Reserve is the king of the current system. And so they they've been they've been not aggressive at 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 looking into central bank digital currencies like some of those other ones have. Mm. And so if they want to move forward now, you know, I, I think in the in the West, probably we're we're looking at at least for a period of time more reliant on those private stablecoin type of, of entities because the Federal Reserve would take probably years to, you know, deploy something if they start from scratch. Right. And so, you know, face, Facebook's Libra was an early attempt. They wanted to make essentially a bank or, or like an SDR, like a basket of major currencies, uh, but, you know, issued by this private entity. Uh, and that regulators didn't really like that. So that, that, that kind of got halted. And then they resurrected that as DM, which is, you know, more like separate stable coins. They'd have a dollar stable coin, then they might separately have a euro stable coin. Uh, and so they, you know, from their perspective, they want to have their own wallet. They want to have this this ecosystem. And, and basically, they want to kind of displace the banking system to some extent. So stable coins are very efficient for anyone who's kind of uh, worked with a, a digitally native business or, or use stable coins. They can be far more effective than, say, wire transfers. You can send, you can send a stable coin payment internationally at 2 a.m. on a Sunday and it settles in a few minutes mm. and no, you didn't have to ask permission. Now, mm. 
regulators still like stable coins more than something like Bitcoin as long as they have control of it because, for example, stablecoin issuer can blacklist certain addresses. Um, and so it's not a fully decentralized system like, say, Bitcoin is where it's unstoppable right. pretty much. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, if 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 you were kind of you know not on some blacklist, you're using this fairly permissionless decentralized thing, and you're going around banking hours, and you can go international. And so obviously regulators are trying to get a handle on that and figure out what that means and and what kind of systemic issues it can have. Uh, and banks are you know I think somewhat worried about that sort of thing as well. But those are the advantages of that stablecoin technology. Um, and so I think in the West probably going to see you know those projects launch but with heavy regulation so they want to they want to make sure that they're holding pristine collateral you know none of like yeah you know, they're not exactly thrilled with the offshore ones that we don't know what they hold for sure yeah. or how much they hold they want to they want to have these entities that are holding it if if they say if the stable coins backed by dollars uh they want it to be backed by you know dollars and t-bills that are audited well right so uh, I, I think that's that's the type of thing we're going to see. So we're seeing UDS uh, uh, DC, for example, Circle. Uh, that's kind of the the, the more regulated stablecoin. You could say the a little bit more above board Tether. Gemini Gemini has also had a very regulated uh, stablecoin. They've kind of stuck to the you know the the pristine collateral approach. Uh, Facebook mm -hmm. clearly wants to orientate themselves around that direction as well. The difference being that so far, the primary usage for stablecoins has been speculating. Uh, in 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 crypto markets, right? So they they bring the stable coins to an offshore exchange. They use it as a unit of account to trade Bitcoin, Ethereum, and these other these other tokens. Uh, whereas Facebook wants to make that more of like a peer to peer payment system. They want to use stable coins more for that purpose. Now yeah. there are businesses that you know that are kind of early that have been using stable coins, and it's like if you talk to them once they go once they start doing that, they never want to go back, right? Because no, no one wants to send like a, a three a three day wire transfer. Then you lose track of it. You're trying to argue with your bank, and they get told no. Yeah. They just want to be able to send. They want to be able to send that payment two a.m. on a Sunday if they want to. Um, and so that's spreading, but you know it hasn't really gotten too far into consumer finance yet. And so that's where that's where Facebook wants to go after. And if you look at their new white paper, their you know their their second version, their DM, you know not the Libra, but the DM. They reference central bank digital currencies. They kind of view themselves as potentially working with central bank digital currencies as an overlay, as an extension. So, for example, their reserves could be central bank digital currencies. They could be Fed coins, for example, and that this would be like a tech layer over that 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 has more features than the Fed could do on their own. Right. And so we're gonna. That's kind of a big question going forward: is how fast is this ecosystem going to develop, uh, and what direction it's going to take? But I, you know, I think that's kind of one way to think about it. And then we monitor it and see if, if we see a change in direction. Okay. Thank you for that. Now, a lot of the guests I have on this show, we, we talk about central bank issue digital currencies and, and things get pretty exciting. We sort of walk down that path about what the future could look like and all of this stuff. It's very easy to go down a dystopian path, right? I mean, you talked about a lot of the benefits, yeah. convenience, right? Able to send a wire at 2 a.m. on a Sunday and have no delay or authentication required, or I guess approval required, third-party approval. It's also easy to walk down the dystopian path and say central bank issued digital currencies are really a surveillance tool that also function as a currency. That's what they really are. But let me ask you, Lynn, when, when you walk down that path, like in, in your mind, do you get excited? Do you get nervous? Both? Do you see it as more utopian future, dystopian future? How do you react? So both. I mean, obviously in China, we have the more dystopian version. Sure. of you know the surveillance coin that's like linked to a social credit score 
it's horrifying to agree. You know, uh, very horrifying. It basically gives the state tremendous power. So, uh, you know, I, the ideal future uh, is is that you know you don't phase out cash or private transactions uh, while you add this for people that want to use them. And so, for example, if you're sending a wire transfer, you're, you're already getting surveilled anyway at that point. Yeah. And so, this you know, stable coin transfers are just way better when you're already operating inside of a surveilled system. It's just better. It's it's basically technology applied to multi-decade-old systems, and it's just a better version of the same thing. Uh, and so, really, that's that's just better. But the the risk is if the, if they try to phase out cash. Um, and and so that's where you can get, for example, locked into negative rate type of environments because you can't withdraw to cash. Um, and it makes it so that they can surveil every transaction, whereas cash has always been a you know the most private type of, of interaction. So people have often been concerned about cryptocurrencies and their use in crime. Criminals actually prefer cash because that's really the, the most private type of, of, of you know transaction. Mm-hmm. But you know not everybody, you know, it's it's Privacy is not the same as criminality. Uh, so p- plenty of people just want to have privacy with their transactions. And they, I, you know, I, I strongly support that they should be able to do that. They should have an option to do that. And so in a world where cash still exists, in a world where something like Bitcoin exists, which is like pseudo-private, can't be stopped, can't be told no. Uh, so I, I like those types of, of bearer assets, those, those private or semi-private bearer assets alongside you know, stable coins to replace some of the clunky parts of our financial system. So mm. the, the risk is that this technology does give policymakers a lot of tools, many of which negative, with China being an obvious example. And I would hope that, that you know, people push back and, and kind of advocate for privacy. Uh, you know, we've, we've seen some kind of infringements on privacy in countries around the world over the past year or so, and technology just makes that easier and easier for them to do. So I, I think there are kind of dystopian risks and one doesn't have to think very hard because we literally see China already doing it and we see other countries kind of you know flirting flirting with some authoritarian policies mm. what other countries Lynn what other countries come to mind well I mean that's that's I was talking about like broadly like you could okay. you could say for example mandates around you know vaccines or certain things I, I don't want to get political with sure. stuff like that but basically you know we certainly have controversial things that are happening yeah that you know, when you start linking it to technology, you know that basically one way to control things is through the money system, right? So if you can shut off people's access to money, if you can automatically debit their account, if you can surveil every every transaction, obviously a state has more power. And if it's a benign state, then you might not get negative consequences from that right away or for a long period of time. But if that state deviates in any way, like say China has, uh, you know they're more prone to use that against the populace. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I'm with you. Okay. Now, uh, in the fall of 2020, I had you on the show and I asked you, Lynn, if if you had a hundred grand and all I wanted you to do with it was speculate and your time horizon was five years. And I was asking you for the most exciting speculation over a five-year time horizon. Your answer at that point was Bitcoin. And if I ask you the same question today, do you have the same answer or a different answer? I mean, with a five-year time horizon, I, I still think Bitcoin is one of the best risk rewards out there. Mm. I don't even, I, I consider it, you know, below, below the risk of speculation in the sense that it's it's not like a Hail Mary, like I'm not like, a, you know, it's not something without fundamentals. It's something that I consider safer than some of my other investments, for example. Uh, but I do still think it has one of the highest return potentials. I, I think the uranium space uh, offers another uh, avenue for, yeah. for you know pretty pretty large gains. So I think that you know the Bitcoin and the uranium space, uh, you know, if, if someone wants to get 
riskier they can go into say altcoins or something like that. Yeah. Um, but those, you know, statistically have a very, very poor track record over a five-year period. Whereas it, with Bitcoin, it's kind of like you can be very volatile in the near term, but so far at least, and this this could this might not continue in the future, but so far, no one's ever held Bitcoin for four years and not been up, right? So you, you can there's been periods where they've held it for two years and they're down, uh, maybe two and a half years. But in every four-year period, Bitcoin mm-hmm. is is considerably higher. Um, and so whereas the altcoins kind of have the opposite problem where they have really explosive gains, but generally over long periods of time, uh, they tend to degrade, uh, except for so far out of the thousands, there have been a handful that have, that have held on for more than one cycle. Um, and so, you know, there are spaces like that that one can speculate in. But I, I think things like Bitcoin and, and uranium and spaces like that kind of provide considerable upside mm. uh, with, with less downside risk. Okay, I love that. And the same question, you have 100 grand, your time horizon is five years, but your only goal is to protect purchasing power. Where do you look in that scenario right now? That's the biggest challenge. So my only answer for that would be diversification. So it'd be things like equities, gold, Bitcoin, even as percentage. Sure. Uh, You know, a bunch of different assets, you know, your your home, your like real estate, uh, to basically not bid any one thing. And it just being a lot of real assets. Um, and then maybe some, for example, you know, even though I don't particularly like cash, I don't particularly like bonds, uh, I would have a non-zero amount of, say, tips, for example, because if you do get a risk-off environment, uh, you could rebound that. So, so you know, I still like some liquidity uh, in there to, you know, kind of take advantage of kind of maybe risk-off moments that happen. So there's really no single asset that I would say, I just want to put this in in, in five years and make sure I don't lose it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if I mean obviously if I was measuring in dollar terms, it'd be it'd be dollars or T bills, uh, but the purchasing power of that is likely to go down. That's so it'd be some co- some combination of of real assets essentially. Got it. Got it. Okay, Lynn, thanks so much for coming back on. I appreciate it. Yeah, I uh, appreciate your time. I appreciate your perspective. You're a crowd favorite on my channel, so thanks again. Happy to. Thanks for having me. All right. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.